The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. People in the medical profession have hard jobs, and training in new doctors particularly. For an industry that's all about helping people be well, it hasn't always looked after its workers. And situations like long hours, having to deliver terrible news, and the stress of things like pandemics and public uncertainty make some days harder than most of us could imagine. One trainee doctor noticed this, and after a difficult situation with a teaching surgeon who was bullying, she set out to work out how many people in the profession were feeling the pressure, stress and difficulty. A lot, it turned out. More than half of all the people surveyed. This led to research and then development of an app to track and understand the current state of frontline workers in health through daily check-ins on important measures. The app can predict depression and anxiety and help point people to timely help. When the CEO, Dr Elizabeth Berryman, started sharing news about the healthcare-focused app, she got requests from corporates, and so Channel, as it's called, has been extended to be for all workforces. To talk her path to entrepreneurship, the app, and the state of it all, Elizabeth joins us now by Zoom, from the currently hard-to-access hinterlands of Auckland's North Shore. Morena, good morning. Morena, Simon. Hey, so tell me... Tell me about how you first, um, about your journey into being a trainee doctor, where you you first come kind of uh, came across the issue. As you had you had an interesting kind of career, and uh, went through other health services first. Hey, yes, that's right. I started off as a registered nurse, and I worked in a variety of settings and uh, and Fano order. Uh, and a Māori health provider on the North Shore, and I worked in the outback of Australia, and I finally followed my dream to be a doctor, and I was accepted into Otago Medical School, and it was really, really exciting. Um, I had spent, you know, many years trying to get into medical school. It's not that easy, um, but I finally got in, and uh, yeah, I was really loving it. Is it a common thing? Like, how many nurses... Uh, then go on to train to be doctors? Because it always kind of strikes you as a patient that the nurses know as much about what's going on as the doctors, except they also have uh, a whole bunch of empathy and kindness and have to do all the hard work. Yes, so Otago has a special entry program uh, for others, that's what it's called, and it's people who have done five years or more in allied health professions. So yeah, there was actually about 20 of us in my year who had done, say, paramedicine, midwifery, pharmacy before going into medical school. But yes, I was the only nurse in my year. 
And what's it like? Uh, you know, uh, what was it like being a trainee doctor with that background? Uh, and what were the experiences that you faced there? Yeah, it was great. I uh, brought a whole lot of different experiences. As I said, I worked in the outback of Australia, uh, and so yeah, it was it was it was it was actually quite hard to go back into the lecture setting, and it's really quite heavy going with a lot of theory. And I was really excited to get out of the lecture theatre and back into the hospital. So for your fourth, fifth and sixth years of training, you are in clinical placement. So you're based in hospitals around the country. And, you know, the experience that we're talking about today actually became from my first ever placement. Uh, and that was as a fourth year medical student on a surgical ward. And I, I was actually, ironically, the president of the New Zealand Medical Students Association when I experienced this bullying. And I had no idea that it was bullying at the time. I thought that I was a bad student. I was just so disappointed in myself because I was a nurse and I was like, yay, I'm finally getting to show what I know. But in fact, I was, I was failing miserably. And um, it actually turned out that it was actually that toxic workplace environment, the culture that, that ward had that enabled bad behaviors such as bullying to happen. And yeah, it kind of, it, it led me on a bit of a personal journey. I experienced some personal mental health uh, because of that. I was really fearful about going onto the ward and seeing this particular surgeon. I was having full on panic attacks, even thinking about having to go into the hospital. And it got so bad that I thought, I just can't do this. You know, I'd spent so long trying to get into medical school and here I was contemplating quitting because of this culture that enabled this bad behaviour and, um, and just, you know, it, it made, have made, have made my career not even happen because of a bully. And how did you, how did you confront that bully and turn it around? Yeah, so I actually went to the dean of the medical school to talk about quitting, um, and that's when he, for the first time, said, oh no, he's actually known for this kind of behaviour, so um, you're going to have to become more resilient. Now, that came, you know, a little bit of a surprise. I thought, no, I'm quite a tough person, actually, you know, like I have, I have had a career before this, and, and I'm pretty resilient. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's when I said, actually, I think we should do something about it. So I went for counselling myself, which was really helpful. But then with the New Zealand Medical Students Association, we started on a bit of an advocacy campaign around finding out what really is happening in clinical placement for students. Because it's a it's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's it's a workplace, but it's also your ticket to kind of passing this thing that you've poured years of your life into to become a doctor. And so there's a that that double kind of uh, double pressure riding on it. And there's there's something kind of like in the culture uh, where you kind of have these kind of you know characters like House on TV and the like, where being a um, curmudgeonly senior doctor and being you know mean to the young ones is almost seen as kind of like a rite of passage or something. But that's but that's not cricket, is it? Well, actually, <laughs> you know, these medical dramas aren't yeah. actually too far from the truth. Like Scrubs and Grey's Anatomy, they actually have really strong themes of what it's like to be in this high pressure environment with a strong hierarchy, where you know you've got the senior surgeon, then you've got your registrars, then you've got your house officers, then you've got your juniors. Uh, and then the students are right at the bottom. So, you know, there is this huge dynamic uh, that is in medicine and actually in a lot of different workplaces when you've got a hierarchy. And this this power imbalance um, is really comes to the fore. And, you know, I think as you were saying, it's really important it's really pertinent in medicine because if you make a complaint against uh, Mr. Senior uh, or Mrs. Senior, that um, your career 
could be affected um, and you know you might not get into the training programs that you want to so you really need to um, suck it up really and get on with it but in fact it's actually not good for learning and it's not good for our mental health. And so what did you find when you went out to survey and find out what it was like in other clinical placements? Yeah, so we did a national survey and we found that 54% of medical students had experienced bullying, sexual harassment or discrimination in the past year. And that was pretty landmark at the time. That was in 2014 and this was pre-hashtag MeToo movement um, and we got quite a lot of uh, exposure on the media, so 6 o'clock news and front page of the Herald. And I got a lot of hate mail, actually, from a lot of people saying, you're bringing our profession into disrepute. Um, You know, you're just, you know, these um, students who are just, you know, being too soft. And, you know, it's actually interesting that now, since 2014, that has completely changed. The Royal College of Surgeons found that they had at close to 60% of their trainees experiencing bullying or sexual harassment. And they actually put a whole campaign together called Let's Operate With Respect. And that's been very successful. So it's great to see that these changes are happening. Yeah, that's remarkable. So what, especially because you kind of think of the medical profession, you, you know, like uh, it, it is, you, you do think of it as having really high standards of care around the people who visit it and maybe the people who work in it. Um, but what what did you do with that information? Uh, once you found out that it was, uh, you know, a really systemic problem. Yeah, well, like any good scientist, we want to do more research. So we wanted to get to the bottom of it. What's really causing this, and how is this able to happen in this day and age? And I don't actually think that bullies set out to be bullies. They don't know what they're doing is actually inappropriate. And so it's about an education piece. It's about learning about why people are acting in the way that they are. And what we found is it all comes down to the environment. It's the environment that enables a culture where, you know, psychological safety is is a word that we use quite a lot around people being able to speak up and say, actually, that is kind of inappropriate. You made me feel like this. Um, Now, that's extremely hard to do. Uh, to speak up, especially when you've got these hierarchies in place. So we started doing focus groups and asking people how they wanted to be able to solve this issue. And through that research, they said that they wanted an app. And I was like, okay, no, you don't want an app. There's like 2 million apps out there for well-being. And they said, no, we want an app so that we can have a safe channel to be able to tell people what is going on for us without having to be named. So they wanted a fully anonymous system so that they could report back to, say, the medical dean or the CEO or board level uh, what was happening for them on the front line, but they didn't want to cause any trouble. So they said, we want to be able to report these things in a safe way. And then were you able to, I guess if you do that kind of thing, you're able to find patterns and themes and environments where uh, you get the same Uh, information back from a number of people and then you can start trying to um, come up with a plan to fix the environmental problem. Exactly, exactly. So we do aggregated anonymous reports. Uh, Every month we do a deep dive report to dive into what the themes are coming out. And you know, there's positive things too, Simon. So, you know, there's things like, um, I worked well in a team today. And it enables people to celebrate that and to be like, yay, we are doing great here. But then if there is, you know, like those reoccurring things around bullying or incivility, which is, you know, things like rolling your eyes or not saying good morning, um, those kind of things can also be picked up as well. And so what we also did with the app is that the users, well, the doctors and nurses in our, in our research said that they wanted to be able to monitor and measure their own mental health. 
So we also have a system where they can check in with uh, how they're feeling for that day and we have some algorithms and some AI that runs and it says um, predictive for 90% uh, accuracy up to for depression and anxiety. And what that does is it enables people to get help earlier. So if you're a busy professional, you don't have much time to, to do things for yourself. But if you've got an app that's tracking how you're feeling and it pops up and it says, hey, it looks like you're actually trending low uh, over the last couple of weeks, we suggest that you, you know, access support services or do some extra things for your well-being. And our participants in our clinical studies said that they really found that useful. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Kia ora, I'm Sophie. And I'm Simon. And I'm Alice, and together we host the spin-off's food podcast, Dietary Requirements. Join us each month as we explore a vast culinary landscape. From the gourmet Ooh la la To your more hearty taka Kiwi onion dip anyone? Everything's on the table in Dietary Requirements Subscribe wherever you listen to all your other favourite podcasts Wow, what kind of, jump, jumping ahead a bit But what kind of questions do you ask on a daily basis of users That allows you to then be able to um, pick those uh, t- trends of feeling uh, greater pressure and greater anxiety and maybe the beginnings of depression. Yeah, absolutely. So great that we are evidence-backed. So we use validated scientific algorithms that are already doing, um, used in different countries. And so the one we use is the um, World Health Organization one. And it's just five questions. And it asks uh, questions around anxiety and depression. And it asks a very interesting question, which is around sleep quality. Now, very interesting, uh, with COVID happening, we found that that sleep quality has been one of the first things to go. And so we can put uh, interventions in to help people sleep better, which then will improve their overall well-being. So, you know, it's, it's quite a cool little tool that we can do, and we can get so much information out of a 30-second daily check-in. That's remarkable, as, you know, if you ever are in a period of um, mental health uh, not being top you're often the last person to realize everyone around you kind of knows that you've become withdrawn or not as um uh not not as engaged as you had been but it's only kind of like once you're quite deep in the thickets that you realize where you're sitting uh, in general isn't it yeah, absolutely. It's about that that frog in the pot. You know, you're sitting there and the and the pot's kind of getting warmer and warmer and warmer and you don't really notice until it's boiling and then you can't jump out. Uh, so, yeah, it was about those early warning signs and early detection of, of small changes uh, that can help people to stay on track and, and, and get help when they need it. So after doing that research, that extra research and finding out that people wanted these things, how did you go about putting it together into an app and getting it into the hands of uh, enough frontline healthcare workers to then be able to, you know, refine it to where it is now? Like, what's the process to go? Because I imagine also, you know, this is all happening kind of towards the ends of of your study to be a doctor, which um, pretty busy time, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, how, how did you get it all up and going? Yeah, sure. So um, it was interesting. I went, you know, as academics, you present your research findings in conferences. And I went off to Adelaide and I presented it at the Royal College of Surgeons Conference and it won the best education prize. And because of that, it got into the magazine that goes out to every single surgeon in Australia and New Zealand. And I just was inundated with people emailing me saying, hey, can we have your app? 
And I was like, well, I'm a final year medical student. It's just a research project. Yes, it's got some amazing results, but it's not really a commercially viable app. It's, it's still very um, a research app. And so um, I was actually um, having my first child and I was going to go on leave for a year between finishing medical school and starting as a junior doctor. And I said to my husband, I said, hey, how about we do this? Like, this is obviously making an impact. Um, and at the same time, I actually had two of my colleagues commit suicide um, in my final year of medical school. And so that was the impetus for me to say, actually, can we do something here? Can we make a difference for people? And so for my year of maternity leave, we um, went through the commercialization pathway and Auckland Uni Services, um, that's Auckland University's commercial spin-out group, um, yeah, they assisted with, with that process. Oh, wow. And so... How how did you actually um, go about uh, assembling the team and launching it as a product? And I mean, it 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 was originally just for the healthcare sector, wasn't it? But then mm-hmm. it's now available for all workplaces. Yeah how how does that how did that go through as a process? Yeah, it was just organic, really, Simon. Um, it just kind of people were using it, were loving it. They would go home and tell their spouses, and their spouses were, you know, working for corporates. And then all of a sudden, we were having inquiries from all over. And initially, I was like, well, no, it's actually quite specific for medicine. So, for instance, one of the questions we ask people is around death and dying and um, trauma and things like that, which doesn't really happen in a corporate. Well, Hopefully, you're not having your clients die on you. So, um, yeah, it was not quite specific. Not regular responsibilities. <laughs> no. Um, so, so, yeah, so we did have to adapt it um, to suit other corporate workplaces. And so now we've got a generic version of the app available as well. What's the, you know, what are some of the, the um, outcomes or feedback or stories you've had back from places that it's been used as I mean the whole world of medicine is so remarkable and that you know junior doctors the hours that they worked and then when when some were were pushing back saying hey maybe it's not that um, healthy or uh, good an idea for patients or us to be doing such long shifts uh, so frequently because our decisions won't be good and and, you know the battering uh, engine came out and said oh well it was good enough for us and people are getting soft and you're like no 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 that's that's unreasonable. So there must be a lot of kind of different areas in medicine as well where there's some unreasonable expectations. Yeah, what what's this actually mm-hmm. helped to surface and um and 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 help fix up? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's another whole area talking about <laughs> uh, workplace um, inv- uh, working conditions. Um, but yes, we see that, as I said, it's the environment that we're in has a massive play on our mental health. And uh, the health and safety legislation changed in 2015, saying that directors were now personally liable for the mental well-being and psychological safety of their staff. And it goes on to actually specify bullying and sexual harassment. So it's really interesting that that legislation changed and yet we haven't really seen much change in health and safety in organisations in New Zealand. And yeah, I think that as as time goes on, we're going to see probably even some some prosecutions maybe around this this legislation. And so it's going to become more and more important for senior leaders uh, and even at the board level to have really good insight into what's going on for their staff on the front line. Yeah, that is that is remarkable, and you know we do see the um, the, the the prosecutions around things like uh, deaths in the workplace. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean there must be so many companies where there are cultures that are looking the other way while bullying or you know a really difficult senior staff member that everyone knows is difficult, but it's just not okay. 
No. And this is a global problem, Simon. So I've been contacted by people across the globe. Um, in fact, just last week, I was contacted by um, a company in Japan, uh, a large bank, and they were saying that they've got a, you know, an issue with suicides in the workplace in Japan. And it's been going on for many years. And um, there's been quite a lot of things that have been trying to do to reduce the suicides in the workplace. And they still really haven't found a solution yet. And so they were reaching out to me to see whether they could use Channel to be able to um, monitor what was going on for their staff and in particular around workload and work pressure. Yeah, how is it going today? Like, um, yeah, uh, requests from Japan and a bunch of corporates <laughs> taking it up and stuff. That must be so exciting to see. Yeah, yeah, it's been a really, really fast ride, to be honest. Um, you know, COVID hit, uh, and I had 40 leads in my inbox in, in the first week of lockdown. And that was really, really amazing that we have done four years of research on this app and it was ready to go when we needed it during lockdown. So, you know, people who were like, oh, no, we don't want an app. We don't want e-mental health. Actually, it's the only way that we could reach people during lockdown. And so an app became a really great vehicle uh, for people to be able to access support when they're at home. And I imagine that the pressures of COVID, you know, that are that are universal, uh, but especially in healthcare where you see, um, you know, around the world it's healthcare professionals who are on the front line of actually disproportionately uh, catching COVID and, and also just, the, you know, the, the, the workload and the pressure. Um, yeah, what a remarkable time to be launching. It's been really, really interesting. So, you know, we went from having three people working at Channel to 12 people at the end of the first lockdown. So that was a really ro- rapid growth and scale up. And it was it was, it was was exciting, but at the same time, I was also trying to finish a funding round. Uh, and we were doing a seed raise, and uh, we actually found that um, some of our investors, in fact, pulled out uh, of that investment round uh, because of the COVID, and they were unsure about what the world was going to happen. And so... Um, um, was left going, oh my gosh, we've got this huge demand, we've got this huge need out there and people are wanting channel and you know, people were signing up on the website left, right and centre and yet I was having no money to fund it or to get staff in to, to run it. And so um, what happened was is I just spent my whole time on Zoom <laughs> pitching to angel groups up and down the country, talking to anybody who would listen to me um, about this and we managed to actually get our funding round underway and we're about to close in the next week or so. And it's been a fantastic experience, um, one that was very stressful for myself. But, uh, yeah, really great to see that people were getting behind and supporting this great initiative. And, in fact, it was a lot of amazing wahini out there in New Zealand who really thought, actually, we need to do something about this. And, um, and they, they invested. Yeah, what would your advice be for someone who, um, you know, is, is – because it must have been a real big – call to to jump slightly sideways into a different way of caring for people after working so hard and and having wanted to be a doctor for so long what what would your advice be for someone who is wanting to kind of um yeah seize seize and take uh bring into the world something that there's obviously a real need for that that just kind of comes across your path yeah, I really didn't think that I would be running a startup. Um, I thought I was on my trajectory to be um, a doctor and get into the training program. I wanted to train in psychiatry. And uh, I was actually sitting on a psychiatry ward at North Shore Hospital. And I was thinking I could help 20, 30 people here on the ward. 
or we could take something like technology and leverage this so that we can support tens of thousands of people um, to be able to support their mental health. So it was all about preventative and realising that actually we don't have the resources uh, in hospitals or in the DHBs to do this. We need to actually put more pressure on private uh, companies to take more responsibility for their staff. And what will success be for you in the uh, the world of channel and uh, in, in the world of what you make happen? Yeah, we, we've got an ambitious vision that we want to truly understand mental health. And it's about uh, listening to people and finding out what people want to help with their mental health because you know most people actually know what they need and we able, we just need to be able to give it to them in a way that they can access in a way that is appropriate to them with cultural safety and you know we are able to use things like for instance chatbots um i was very anti chatbots and uh, it turns out that from the research that we've done that in fact it's really good for hard to reach groups for maori and pacifica uh for um, men who maybe in the construction industry who are working isolated actually accessing a tool like that is actually really really useful for them so it's about having an open mind and going what can we do to change this really really seemingly um scary (laughs) uh issue that we're going to have with 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 our mental health following this pandemic we need to do things differently we need to innovate and we need to um need to 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 listen to people to how to do that ah it's so cool well thank you so much for being on today to share the story of uh, Channel App. It's spelt C-H-N-N-L dot app if you're looking for it online. Thank you. That's Dr. Elizabeth Berryman, the CEO and founder. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Simon. Uh, that's awesome. Can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along. If you have a recommendation for someone you'd like to hear from on the Business's Boring podcast, hit me up on Twitter at Simon underscore Pound. Cheers. You've been listening to Businesses Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.